Hey everybody, it's Merlin Van Dien. I'm honored to inform you that I will be participating in this year's edition of Nathan Lively's Live Sound Summit, where we will get to discuss many things, including M-Noise and how to determine the maximum linear SPL of a loudspeaker using a test signal, which is a much better approximation for actual music, within the confinements of your living room, it must be. And who knows, maybe we're going to spice it up with some Star Wars trivia. <laughs> Stay safe and healthy, everybody. See you there. Sound design. Yeah. People have been trying to make passive cardioids for decades. We've figured out how to resistively dampen those ports in a way that is linear at very high levels. Sound design. Yeah. Sound design live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the Vice President of Engineering at Fulcrum Acoustics, David Gunness. Dave, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely want to talk to you about some of the great products that you have at Fulcrum Acoustics. Um, and I have some questions about subwoofer placement, and there's some questions that people sent in from Facebook about FIR filters and the NT series at EAW. So we're going to get to all of that, but before we do that, when you are working on a new or updated loudspeaker design or system, what's one of the first pieces of music you like to listen to through it when you get to that part of the testing, I guess? Yeah. Well, we've got a, uh, a CD that, that has a you know, wide ranging selection of, uh, of cuts and each one has a different purpose. So depending on what the particular challenge of the speaker is, would that would determine, you know, which, uh, which cut I want to listen to. One of my go-tos is a, is a Jennifer Warren's cut. Must be a million boys living in a great big city. Um, not because of Jennifer so much, but because it has a, a very, uh, naturally recorded uh, Fender Jazz bass on it. To actually hear the wood in that bass uh, requires some really good detail in the low mids, and that's one of the hardest things to get right. So that's a, it, I would classify all of these as what we call canary cuts, meaning if there's anything wrong with the speaker, this, this, these cuts will, will point it out. There are other cuts that you just use to show off, and that's not very much use when you're uh, when you're developing a speaker. That sounds great. Uh, so we've got piano cuts, lots of a lot more jazz than I actually listen to in real life. <laughs> but uh, jazz is particularly good because everything is recorded naturally, and you know what that instrument is supposed to sound like. So you have a good judge of whether it's right or not. If you're listening to EDM, it may sound good to you, but it may not be anywhere near. You know, what it's supposed to be. I see. So if you've heard uh, this particular Fender acoustic bass in real life, and now you're hearing it recorded, you have some sort of uh, comparison for what it should sound like. That's right. See, I have a, I, I played in a band with a guy who had a, a 1963 Fender Jazz, and uh, he didn't do anything to it. So I know very well what that instrument sounds like. When I heard this Jennifer Orange cut, I went, oh, that's the same bass. Uh, that's interesting, because I was thinking, even if you made the CD available to the public, it's very specifically for you and your musical experience. So it's almost like everyone needs to build their own uh, CD of reference tracks that includes instruments that they have a reference for in real life, 
now hearing recorded and played back. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, an awful lot of loudspeaker designers are, are also musicians, and a lot of them use a uh, uh, recording that they made themselves simply because they they know that better than any other recording they could find because you know they they played it, they know the instruments, and they uh, and they recorded it. So that's that makes a good reference for those people. It's definitely a personal personal selection. And I guess that's also why people like virtual soundcheck so much because it's the show that you work on every day, day in and day out, either the band or the the play or whatever, and you put it on and it's the thing that you just mixed last night and it's like immediately apparent how it sounds different or the same. Well and you know, it's I guess it's more of a negative negative look at it, but you know exactly which thing you struggle with every night. If you've been working on a speaker system that just has a problem at, at 2,500 hertz, and as a result, your snare drum all sounds a little plasticky, you go straight to the snare drum and see if, if that plasticky note is still there. Uh, so, Dave, how did you get your first job in audio, like your first paying gig? It was doing sound for myself. I played uh, acoustic solo in, in college, and of course, I couldn't afford to have somebody do sound for me. I couldn't even afford to buy speakers, so I built speakers. That's, that's kind of where it all started. In terms of a real job, that was uh, straight out of college. I got hired by Electro Voice. At the time, I thought it was a massive accomplishment, but in reality, they just needed somebody young and cheap that they could plug in to replace somebody else who had been young and cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, that was the opportunity, and then you make with it what you can. So looking back on your career so far, what do you think is one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? Well, I guess it's, it's, it's deciding that, uh, that engineering was a, was a better way to make a living than being a musician. I actually had a car accident on the way to a gig one, one time in, a, in December, and it came to uh, January when the classes were supposed to start up and my brain didn't work yet because I had a massive concussion. So I, you know, I took a semester off and within a few weeks I was okay and started playing music. But then I got, and I thought, well, this is going great. I could just quit this college thing and be a musician. And then about, you know, two months into it, I got laryngitis and all the musician money went away. And I realized, yeah, this isn't such a, this isn't a very safe way to make a living. It's a much better hobby than, than a profession. So, you know, the, the decision was to uh, was to turn music into a hobby and, and make engineering a profession. I think I've made good decisions about when it's the right time to make a move. Like when I moved from EV to EAW, that was at a time when, uh, I guess, in very vague terms, that EV didn't need me as much and EAW needed me a lot. So that made that, uh, that move make a lot of sense. How did you figure that out? Can you take us to that moment in your life? What was going on? And then, and then what happened that moment where you said, okay, now's the time I'm going to do it. Uh, well, EV was cutting staff at a time when EAW was growing. Um, some of the things that I had been very excited about doing started looking less and less likely to, you know, to, to happen. And so it was looking like, you know, it was scaling back in terms of ambitions of things I wanted to do. And, uh, and EAW was all, all gung-ho, let's, let's try everything. And uh, so it was more like it had less to do with me than with the, uh, where the companies were at the time. 
And you know, it's almost the same situation when, when I left to start Fulcrum. It had started looking like the, uh, the primary project that I was excited about at EAW wasn't going to happen. And, and so that meant it was time to leave and, and, uh, and start my own thing. That project did happen eventually, actually. I became on Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> for, for people who are EAW followers. So I had a lot of fun watching my old, my old uh, compadres put that together and not having to, not having to do the work myself. <laughs> Any regrets about making that decision? You thought, this isn't going to happen. I better start my own thing. And then it did happen. You know, that, that's good versus good. I mean, it would have been nice to be part of that project, but I have no regrets because, you know, starting fulcrum was uh was even more fun sure so now starting your own business is definitely uh seems to me a a pretty clear way that you could do more of the work that you love if you're in charge and you're deciding what projects to work on what jobs to do um have you found it to turn out that way or uh has it has it do you end up doing a lot of things that you also don't want to do uh well there's obviously there's a mix of both in a very small company you end up doing a, a lot of wearing a lot of hats so you can't you can't very be a, be a specialist in any sense um, but actually one of the things that was uh, that was really attractive early on was just realizing that we could kill a product if we didn't like it uh, in a corporate environment once you know once there's a, a project identified it's got a schedule attached to it and it's going to it's going to be finished at the end of the schedule, whether you like it or not. And so, you know, sometimes things don't work as well as you'd like them to. So there have been two or three out of you know out of the couple hundred products that I've designed under Fulcrum. There have been a few of them where we just kind of agreed that we don't like this one. Mm. We're just we're just going to pretend it never happened and uh, and go away and make something better. That's that's quite a luxury. Yeah, one of the best things is is being able to say no to something, right? A project going on. That's great. Could you talk a little bit about how these projects come to be? Because I'm imagining in a more of a corporate environment, someone figures out there's a market for this. So we should build this thing. And now it's your job to like build the thing. In your case, how do you get the idea that says, oh, you know, we should do this product that has these features. Is that going to help someone or that's just... Uh, something that I want to see come to life. How do you? How do those ideas come? They, they come from from various directions. Um, one thing that happens quite often is uh, uh, we do a certain amount of custom work, um, particularly for the theme parks. Quite often, a a need for a custom product is generic enough that the response to that need is worthy of being becoming a product itself. In some cases, that would that would apply to, for instance, the RX line that was originally done to be speakers in a in, in theme park rides, and we thought they would be too expensive, you know, for general contracting to be interested in, and and uh, we were very surprised to find out that it became one of our you know top selling speaker lines. Um, the other thing that uh, that kind of enters into it when you're in a in a startup company is that if you're dealing with a 1% market share, you don't need, uh, you don't need to hit a home run to have a product be significant. And, uh, you know, um, if you can sell a hundred to something, it's, it's a product, it's a project that's worth doing. And so 
the smaller companies tend to fill the niches that are ignored by the bigger companies because they look at it and say there isn't enough potential sales there to make this worth doing. But the amount of potential sales may be significant to a smaller company. It's one of the things that keeps our industry, the pro loudspeaker industry, it keeps it uh, diversified where there's lots of small companies and big companies. And uh, there's always opportunities to fill a niche. Someone asks you to do some custom work, and that's like enough of an indicator to show that this this could be worth taking the risk. There could be some demand for this. Plus, someone's already paid for all the R and D in a way for you to like build the thing. Yeah, there are there are surprises in every project too. So the other source of these sort of unusual products is is direct input from sales. Um, when our sales guys are out talking to, it doesn't have to be a theme park. It can be a stadium installation, and they have a specific need. And uh, it turns out that if you if you put in the effort to fill their specific needs, they'll sometimes reward you by giving you the order for the uh, you know for the more standard products. Innovation sometimes comes from surprising places. You say, well, I'm not sure how we would go about doing that, but we'll we'll figure out a way to do it. And it turns out that the way you figured out is actually a, a very valuable approach. Um, but the other direction that, that uh, product ideas come from is, is from the engineering side. You can ask people all you want, but they're never going to tell you what they really want is something that they don't think is possible. They're not going to go there. And that would cover the passive cardioid concept. Nobody was coming to us and saying, hey, we really want to be able to do a cardioid without having to have two amp channels and, and two woofers. But uh, it's obvious. The value is obvious. It's just knowing that it's possible and figuring out how to do it, um, that, that would be an engineering-driven new product idea. Pretty good quote recently from uh, this guy who wrote a book called The Mom Test, and he said that you aren't allowed to tell the customer what their problem is, and in return, they aren't allowed to tell you what the solution is. <laughs> so I like that. It doesn't work that way, but <laughs> it's, a nice, it's, it's a nice ideal. That's one of the problems with trying to get... Uh, trying to get input from customers is that their answer is almost always going to be solution-based. So they say, yeah, but what's, you know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And this, the problem that they express to you is, well, the problem is I need a double 12 for this thing. It's like, no, that's a solution. What's the problem? <laughs> it's very difficult to get customers to think in those terms because they they look at the problem and they're thinking about what would solve it not distilling it to the nature of the problem. And then maybe there's some other thing they never would have, would have thought of. So how do you get out of that cycle when you're having that conversation with someone and they won't tell you what the problem is? Is there something you can say to break out of that? Like, tell me about specifically the last time this happened or something like that. Well, yeah. The, I mean, the best solution is, is to be in the field quite a bit. Okay. So you say, you, oh, let you, me come and you, see when it. you're out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you're, when you're out there and you're working with them and, and you, and you go, well, this is a problem, right? And and they say, oh yeah, that's just, that's always a problem. Wouldn't you like to have a solution for that? Well, yeah, but it's not possible. It's like, well, you let me determine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, the best way is to, is to be on site. And that that's why it's it's uh, valuable to get out and, and do a lot, a lot of tuning projects where you discover, you know, what's effective and, and uh, where the opportunities lie. 
Uh, so Dave, I do want to come back and talk more about the subwoofer that you mentioned earlier. But before, I just want to get into some um, maybe general do's and don'ts that you see in the field in terms of sound system design. When there's a mistake, it, it's not to do with uh, loudspeaker selection or aiming or any of that. The the biggest area of mistakes is is uh, EQing finished systems. The easiest thing to do when you're EQing a system is to is not recognizing when you're done. You come to a point where you've done as much as you as much as you should, and then you keep going another couple of days, and it, it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> I think everybody who has ever learned to tune sound systems has has been down that path, and you and you just learn that you know what um, it sounds worse now than it did a few hours ago. I think I'm going to back up a few revisions and and just see if that. You know, if that's really true, when you go back a few revisions, realize, yeah, I've actually been making it worse. That's the most common thing. We, you know, when you go out to uh, a system that's been in place for a long time, the most common, if it doesn't sound great, the most common thing is that somebody has, has done something unhelpful in the EQing of the system. Right. And then, so what do you recommend people that, hey, have someone experienced and reliable do the final EQ and then what? Lock it down and never change it? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's also a problem. I mean people that, that do that real. I mean people that design systems all the time realize that that's going to be a problem. For one thing, you always save a backup copy of of where the system was when you said it's done. Somebody's always going to come along and think they know better because they don't know what the challenges were and so they don't know why various things were done. It's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. I don't think it should have a, you know, a, a 6 dB cut at 250 hertz. And so they undo it. It's like, see, see how much better that is? Well, it turns out that someplace they aren't standing, there's a nasty peak at 250 hertz, and that's why there was a cut there. So it's really hard to come in after somebody has left and improve on an EQ because you don't know what the ch- what challenges they were fighting. The only way you can find that out is to is to zero it all out and start from scratch, and then you probably end up back where they did, because you're fighting the same problems. It's really like you need documentation or notes for the history of every change that was made. So you can say, why was this cut in there? And they can say, well, this thing specific thing happened on this day, and this is why we have that in there to make an informed decision. Otherwise, you, you don't know. That's right. You know, audio guys, very, you know, very few audio guys document to that, to that degree. Audio guys, are, we're, all, we're all people that ran away to join the circus, and that it is a great, it's a great policy. We try to do that in in R and D, um, where you know we've got the time to to take and, and just put notes in the files, uh, uh, the design files as we're as we're working through a design. But it's a lot harder when you're under under the gun under pressure because you're trying to meet a deadline in the field and it's a lot harder to to take the time to document things to that extent and because it so rarely happens the next guy to come along is probably not going to pull out the book and and discover that you've documented everything it'd be interesting to have an eq that uh for every filter had frequency gain bandwidth and notes or reason or something like that that's a great idea actually like you know a notes field so you say here's why here's what this eq is doing this is this is why it's here that would that would be awesome i can can you imagine walking into a an installation where somebody has done that it would it would be spectacular 
And probably once you got done reading through the notes, you'd say, yeah, I think I'm not going to touch anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, this attracted me. Fulcrum's revolutionary coaxial designs allow for improved intelligibility, higher gain before feedback, so on and so forth. So, but this stopped me. Higher gain before feedback. So, I don't know a lot about coaxial designs. How do they improve gain before feedback? Well, the primary thing is that the response is capable of being much more consistent over the entire coverage pattern. If it's the same everywhere, then it can be flat. If it, if there's you know, if a given frequency comes up, goes up and down as you move around in the pattern, there's going to be some place where that frequency is is poking up, and that becomes a feedback frequency at that location. Um, so it's really the primary thing is the consistency, and uh, I can't explain this in technical terms, but it really does seem that uh, having really flat phase response helps a lot with stability and i'm not exactly sure why that would be other than that you know wobbles and phrase in phase uh, correspond to resonances and of course resonances encourage feedback so if your phase is flat and not ripply that means you're you're relatively resonance free well i said i couldn't explain it and i just did but <laughs> i think you just did <laughs> thinking out loud so there's, it's a combination of TQ, you know, flattens the phase and, and eliminates a lot of those. It, it cancels a lot of the resonances and then combine that with the coaxial approach, which gives you, you know, very consistent response. And it's noticeably more stable with, with regard to feedback. And TQ is your proprietary uh, implementation of filtering to um, fix some of these problems or to deliver a result that you want in terms of phase and magnitude, right? Yeah, it's, it's the FIR-based um, equalization technology that we use, and it's responsible for, for uh, an end result with flat phase, which helps with, uh, you know, helps with stability. But primarily, it allows us to make all the speakers sound the same. It's always been a goal of every loudspeaker company is to have a, a family sound so that everything in the catalog sounds the same. It's a lot easier to, to pull it off when everything in the catalog has a TQ loves a, a processor setting for it. Um, for one thing, killing all those resonances with the FIR makes uh, the voicing a lot easier because typically what happens is is that you're when you're voicing a loudspeaker, you're trying to overcome resonances in one that aren't in another to try and make those two sound the same. It's it's futile because one has a resonance the other doesn't have. And so, you know, you're, you're mitigating, you can't really make them sound the same. You can just mitigate problems in each of them until they both sound good. But the switch between them, you're still going to hear differences. Uh, TQ allows us to have everything in the line sound very, very similar. You do. Ironically enough, the smallest speaker we make, the RX 599 is like, you know, six inches by eight inches. And the biggest speaker we make, which would be a AH443 which is a 32 by 32 inch uh, coaxial horn, they both have similar low frequency extension. So they actually have the same frequency response. If you're far enough away for the AH 
to develop, uh, like say 20 feet away, they sound about the same. It's just that, you know, one gets 40 dB louder than the other. They have a similar character, so that it's a very seamless transition between those speakers. Having a, an entire uh, lineup of speakers that, that, that sound like they were voiced by the same person saves a tremendous amount of time during commissioning. Right. I was thinking that that should save me a lot of time deploying these speakers because out of the box, they already sound the same. So I shouldn't need to do much of anything um, to just make same sound in all my zones or whatever. Yeah. All these speakers. Yeah. Same sound is going to be a lot closer. I mean, what happens is that you, you tuck one up in a corner and you're going to get low mid buildup from the walls nearby. And so you, you mitigate that. What you're left is the stuff that didn't have to be mitigated, say 500 hertz and up, sounds the same as your little fill speaker that's that's 20 feet away. And so, yeah, it's it's uh, in, in the end, the system has a much more consistent character as you walk around the room, which means that listeners are less conscious of where the sound is coming from. Mm-hmm. They're not going to look up and say, "Yeah, I got to I got to walk over there because I don't want to li- I don't like the sound of this speaker from standing by." So, speaking of having the speakers all sound like they're voiced by the same person. Nathan asks, what type of tonal shaping EQ does he pre-bake into the presets for his speakers, if any? Oh yeah. So, you know, the house curve is kind of, it's kind of what that is that the, there's the house curve for fulcrum it, it, A is just flat through the mids, which sounds kind of obvious, but uh, with displaced systems where they're not coaxial, it's, it's, usually beneficial to have a dip at crossover because the high pass on the on the hf and the low pass on the lf are both resonant and they're both sitting right there next to crossover so there's all this resonance going on in your crossover and that resonance is called attention to themselves so if you have a 1500 hertz crossover and you just and you dial up so that it's flat through that range you're going to hear 1500 hertz character that doesn't belong there. It's, you're hearing the resonant character. What typically happens is that eventually there's a there's a dip at crossover because as people are EQing by ear, they're coming back to that 1500 hertz that they they're hearing too much of, and they pull that down. Okay, now it sounds better, and so you have a dip at crossover. With coaxial systems, you don't have that issue because you don't have uh, the change in directivity as you're going through crossover. And we also use extremely low Q crossovers where we have sometimes up to two octaves of overlap between the low and high frequencies. And uh, and that's in order to stabilize the polar pattern through that entire range. But as a result, it's even even without the, uh, the FIR filtering, it's very hard to, to pick out where the crossover is when you're listening to a fulcrum speaker, because he, if somebody says, well, where's the crossover? It's like, well, it isn't. It's it's spread over two octaves. There's interaction over two octaves, whereas tip with displaced speakers, you have to try and get out of one and into the other one as quickly as possible, because if they're both on at the same time, they screw up the directionality. Um, so that's probably the the first thing that anybody would notice is to, it's just flat through crossover. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very different than what we're, we're used to listen to speakers with uh, displaced drivers crossover 1500 Hertz. And that sounds that normal. But when the artifacts associated with that go away, you're like, wow, this is very different. But then the other aspect of the, the house curve is the, the low end and the top end. So the low end, we do a very gradual beginning to the roll off 
and don't turn and go down uh, hard until we're down maybe uh, four or five dB. So it looks it looks a little bit like a Butterworth uh, cascaded with a six dB. And the reason for that is because that's the curve that we have found sounds the most the most natural or the most even in terms of notes. So if you have a, a speaker that crosses over at that's going away at 80 hertz, and you use this particular shape, the notes on the bass guitar will all still have about the same weight. It'll sound, you know, the melody will still be there. Whereas if you put like a Butterworth filter on it, where there's a sharp corner, all the notes are going to sound like that corner. Like if there's, if you got a, a 80 hertz Butterworth, all the notes have too much 80 hertz, and they all sound kind of the same. And when you go to the 70 hertz note, it's weak. And if you go to the 80 hertz note, it's it's strong. So the bass line wanders around. It's the technical response, but the the reason is aesthetic. This is what makes all the bass notes sound like they have equal weight. At the top end, generally roll off very, very slightly from about 1K up, not quite a dB per octave. So at 10K, it may be a couple of dB, two to three dB less than it is at 2K. Part of that is just because it, it makes the speaker warm and powerful. Uh, one of the, the cardinal rules of EQ is that you don't want a peak to be louder than, than something below it in frequency. If you've got a you know 102 dB peak at 2K, but it's running 100 dB from 100 to from 500 to 1K, that 2K is going to stand out. If the overall level up there is a little is 2 dB lower, so that that peak ends up at 100 at 100 dB, so that it matches up with the 500 to 1K. That sounds, you know, that 2K doesn't call attention to itself as much. So this gradual uh, decline in frequency response from 1K up, it's just uh, it's just what we found is more forgiving of, uh, of reflections in the space. It keeps everything warm and full, and uh, and also when you have uh, very coherent high frequencies, they sound louder. So. People are used to listening to speakers that are nominally flat, that with displaced drivers and without TQ. And when you flatten the phase, bright gets brighter. So suppressing that a little bit just makes it sound a little bit more like what we're used to. So the high frequencies still come through, but because they're clear and articulate, not because they're loud. Wow, that's a great explanation. And it sounds like um, you've really done a lot of research into uh, how to find the best compromise, really. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of evolution that goes into coming up with, with words to describe what we're hearing. Sure. Because um, when we're when we're tuning a speaker, uh, there's there's a very definite how sound we're going for, and we know how to describe the departures from that sound. Because over uh, uh, Rich Frembus and I have been tuning speakers together for more than the 12 years of Fulcrum. We know how to describe to each other what we're hearing when we hear something we don't like. Dave, you've mentioned FIR 
filters a couple of times already. Another one of Nathan's questions was, what is his process for developing the FIR presets? So is it as simple as you have a target for each model and uh, you measure it and then create the filter and that's it? You start out with the response of, of the uh, previous family members as a as a target and then listen to it and make any, any tweaks you need. It's a little more difficult when you're starting from scratch with the you know, with the first member of a family. In that case, what is what's really helpful is that we don't EQ by looking at the axial response. We EQ by looking at the whole family of, of off-axis curves, including the axial response. Because one thing that uh, that will happen is that if there is a, a bit of a rise near the pattern edge at a given frequency, there needs to be a dip on axis so that it, you de-emphasize that uh, that peak in the response away from the the, uh, the the primary axis. It makes it go a lot faster to be able to look at the response in every direction, you know, on the computer screen while you're developing the uh, the filters. And then when you turn it on and listen to it, it's uh, you're you start out a lot closer than we used to in the old days. Um, so as time has gone on, we've we've had to spend less and less time listening and tweaking and we've shifted more time to uh to the technical part of it i i see every loudspeaker tuning uh project as having two phases there's the technical phase and then the aesthetic phase and that's true whether it's a an individual product or whether that's an, a stadium installation you start out by getting in a stadium you start out by getting everything you know have uh, get a consistent spectrum everywhere in the stadium and then you turn on music and walk around and you mitigate the problems that are usually transient problems because of reflections off of press boxes and all that kind of thing. Um, and the same thing happens on a smaller scale in a, in a product design where you, you do everything you can technically to make the product as perfect as possible. And then you go set it up and listen to it and, and make the aesthetic tweaks so that nothing jumps out at you as being, as being wrong. Would you recommend that people at home try to follow the same process when they're building their own FIR filters for their own systems? So they have the um, measurement step or the technical step where they should be not just taking a measurement with a single microphone, but multiple microphones, maybe from on axis um, and off axis. And I think you said at least four. And then there's the step where they also listen to it and make sure that there's a, is an aesthetic component to it. In the technical part of it, oh, we, we do much more than four. We typically do about 10 curves in various places in the pattern. The way our, our proprietary software works is that when I, when I tweak an EQ, all 10 curves morph at the same time. So I can see if I'm going after a, uh, an off-axis peak to try and lower it, I can see the effect it's having on axis at the same time and, and uh, you know, strike a compromise between those two things but yeah for for people developing their own fir filters i would definitely look at multiple directions and when you're listening you also it, it, it's there's a temptation to just stand dead straight in front of the speaker and that's fine if what you're making is a home hi-fi speaker or if you're making a studio monitor but if you're making something that's going to address an audience all the audience members have are equally important so you need to walk through the entire pattern and you may have to compromise a little bit with the axial response 
in order to mitigate a problem near the pattern edge. It's not how good you can make front of house. It's how even you can make the response everywhere. Dave, let's talk about subwoofers for a little bit. So I think when most of us think of a directional subwoofer, at least for myself, I think of multiple elements arrayed together. Um, And even in the past, I remember using boxes from Meyer Sound, like the M3D subs, but those actually had multiple drivers in the box to create this directional result. But your cardioid subs have a single driver. So how does it work? The way you create a, a cardioid is that the second driver is inverted and delayed where the output from that driver comes out the back of the cabinet. It's delayed uh, the amount so that it cancels what's coming backward from the, for the front-facing driver. You can accomplish the same thing with a passive acoustical network where the, uh, the pressure in the box, of course, is opposite of the pressure on the outside of the, of the primary cone. So it's already inverted, and it has to travel to the back of the box. So there's, there's a delay factor there, uh, but it needs to be low-pass filtered. That's accomplished with, a, uh, you know, with a, a porting network, chambers leading to the port. But it also, the, the, the key thing is it requires resistance because the, oh, the, the back output from the woofer would be extremely peaky. So it, it's a, it's a low-pass filter but with a very high resin peak. And so that resin peak has to be knocked down with, with resistance in the ports. And that's, that's really the challenge. We've figured out how to resistively damp the, dampen those ports uh, in a way that is linear at very high levels. So you can, you can push lots of air through these resistors without having them make flapping noises without, uh, without having the resistance value change. So it's the stability of that resistance at various levels has been the challenge that prevented people from successfully doing passive cardioids. Uh, people have been trying to make passive cardioids for decades. And that's always the, the hang up is that when you get the output high enough, the, the resistance just was not linear enough anymore. So there's patents going back to the, to the early 70s for passive cardioid approaches, but there were no uh, commercial products developed from those patents because of the implementation challenges. So yeah, it's easy to, to say, well, this is how you could make a passive cardioid, but then when you actually try to make it work, you discover the material challenges. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been able to push it farther, be, not because of, uh, we invented new materials, but because there are new materials that have been invented for other industries that are that are more bankrolled. One of the one of the key elements is the microphone in your cell phone. In the I remember in the '90s, going through a couple of cell phones. I must spit a lot when I talk because my cell phone microphone would would be the first thing to die, <laughs> and that was universal until somebody came along with this uh, this cloth that's hydrophobic that you can put in front of the microphone and then the spit doesn't reach the little condenser microphone. And so they lasted longer forever, really. But that cloth, in order to not screw up the response to the microphone, had to be a very specific acoustical resistance. And so that material now exists in a form where the acoustical resistance is actually a QC factor. That kind of changes things because now we can buy something that we know is always going to work. 
you might try a material and, and get a passive cardioid to work, but then you go into production with it and it's not working right because the next batch of material didn't have the same acoustical resistance. It's about consistency and, and uh, you know, richer industries developing materials that, that we can use productively in loudspeakers. Um, and now you've built this technology into a lot of your products. So there are a lot of speakers you can get from Fulcrum that have something like a T, uh, 10 dB front to back ratio of low frequency rejection. Yeah, and it's not a uh, particular shape that we've that we've targeted is uh, referred to as a subcardioid. So most people are familiar with a a pure cardioid, which has a uh, a deep null directly on the back axis. And then a supercardioid and a hypercardioid with a uh, with the null shifting towards or forward toward the uh, toward the equator. A cardioid has a match delay between the front and back, and if the delay is not quite enough, then you shift the null towards the equator. If there is no delay, you have a figure eight pattern. It's at ninety degrees. Um, so if you have excessive delay, then what happens is that you no longer have a null. But the attenuation in the back hemisphere uh, spreads over the back hemisphere, so you have a more even attenuation. So there's a little bit more attenuation at uh, plus and minus 135 degrees, and then uh, less attenuation exactly in the back axis. And it just it's uh, it's more useful. It's less total attenuation, so there's there's uh, less power lost in cancellation meaning the level in the front is, uh, doesn't drop as much. And uh, it's, just, it's just generally more useful. I mean, even with a subwoofer sitting on the floor, if you walk around behind it, you're not, your ears aren't right on the axis of the, of the cabinet. You're above the axis. So having more attenuation at 135 makes it feel like there's more attenuation than there is from an active pure cardioid. You mentioned that this helps it be more efficient uh, in a front direction. I also read that you chose this pattern to make it easier to do the traditional types of uh, subwoofer arrays that are people are familiar with. And I bring this up because um, Nathan also asked, what compromises do the passive cardioid boxes have or where wouldn't they be a good idea? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting that when we first uh, brought some to, to a trade show, one of our objectives at that trade show was by talking to people to identify um, specific applications where you know where the passive cardioid would be beneficial. Well, the conclusion was pretty unanimous. It was that there's never a case where it isn't beneficial. There is no case when you want low frequencies to go backwards when the high frequencies are going forward. The only thing you're giving up is a, a, a little bit of maximum output. But the passive cardioid approach is actually you give up less than you do with the active cardioid approach. So you get significantly less output in the front with uh, two boxes configured as a passive or as an active cardioid. Whereas, so it's on the order of uh, you know, 3 dB, 2 to 3 dB. But with the passive cardioid approach, you're only losing maybe 1 dB. And the, and the reason is because you don't have to have a second amplifier channel driving a second woofer we haven't had to increase the amplifier channel count or power in order to uh, in order to drive the passive cardioid. And can I put these passive cardioids um, under a stage or 
near a wall? I know that active cardioid arrays seem to be affected by boundaries. When you put it next to a wall, there's, what, there's essentially another one on the other side of the wall facing away from you and then erase the wall. So the question is whether that works. Um, backing a cardioid up to a wall actually uh, works works quite well because the reflection that would be coming off the wall is is what's what's attenuated so you have less effect of the wall normally when you put a uh, when you put a subwoofer backed up to a wall you get a a kind of a clover leaf pattern in the in the front there are places where it, where it you know it falls away and uh, you have much less of that with the with a cardioid the understage thing is something we're still evaluating i think it's it's going to be hard to characterize it simply because it's going to, it's going to come down to details of the you know how much airspace is there around the cardioid how far back is the wall is it a is it a small cavity just surrounding the speaker or is it the entire stage that's you know that's being affected and in fact how tympanic is the stage is the stage sealed or is it actually got air leaks in it so there's so many variables to do with understage placement that you know i'd like to answer we'll try it and see if it's better but of course you know realistically people can't can't specify products that they may or may not use in a in an installation the customer needs to know exactly what they're going to install so we are hoping to come up with some better advice about whether understage applications are whether it's actually beneficial or not Let's see. A couple of articles that I read from your site. One is the best place to put subwoofers is question mark. And the other one is comments on half space. So in the best place to put subwoofers is Jerry Stevens writes that it's best to ground stack your subs if the entire system is ground stacked, but better to fly subs if you're flying the mains. And then in comments on half space in the section on subwoofer deployment, you write that the height of the subs affecting the difference in path links between direct sound and ground bounce can affect this resulting comb filter. So if my mains are flown and my subs are flown, then should the comb filter affect my design choices and limit the subwoofer height? Is there like a maximum angle that I can use um, relative to the listener's perspective to remove the comb filter from my operating range of my subwoofers? Or does the improved SBL distribution with flown subs outweigh the potential comb filter throughout the audience? depends partly on scale. So if, you're, if your mains are 50 feet in the air and you put your subs on the floor, then let's say you time those up, you time them and, and adjust the levels so that you like how they're combining, say 100 feet from the stage. Well, you walk 50 feet forward and now your subs are, are 60 feet louder, but your mains aren't. And your subs are you know, 40 milliseconds closer, but your mains are only 20 milliseconds closer. So as in a large venue, as you walk around the, the level and, uh, and arrival times vary so much that there's just no way to get a tight bottom end. And in that case, yeah, you put the subs up with the mains and then at least the arrival times are the same everywhere um, or very close to the same. It's, uh, I mean, in a, in a living room situation, you know, completely different story because there's nowhere you can go where you're accumulating 20, 30 milliseconds of delay. Most you're going to get is three or four milliseconds. And, you know, it's a much more reverberant space, very, very uh, early reverb. Live sound is a, is a different case 
where the uh, the ideal thing changes depending on the venue, depending on the objective. So yeah, when the subs are in the air, you always have a uh, a notch at some frequency because of the the direct sound combining with the floor bounce. Um, and if that notch happens to be someplace really important, like 80 hertz, then you've lost impact from the subs. And putting the subs on the floor, you have no notch anywhere, and so it, it's going to kick you in the chest better. But it's common in live sound for the subs to be directly underneath the the uh, stacks, and the stacks to not be that high. And in that case, that works that works really well. You don't have the the uh, floor bounce, but the variation in arrival time between the mains and subs changes much more subtly. So you're usually going to time it together at front of house. So the front of house guy knows what he's mixing. And as you walk up front, yeah, the subs are, are getting a little early, but they're also massively loud. And that would be a rock and roll show in a situation where people don't go down front so that they can get pummeled by subs. They go down front because they paid extra for their ticket and they don't they don't want to be pummeled by subs, then yeah, putting them up in the air is going to is going to give much. Uh, it's going to make the distribution of SPL much more similar to the main. So the spectrum throughout the venue is going to be better with the subs in the air. And you know, if it's not a a show where you're trying to project physicality, where you're using the subs to actually hit people in the chest. If it's more of a, of a low key show, then yeah, that's fine. You don't miss the impact and you get more even uh, coverage by, by putting them in the air in sheds specifically. They're on the floor, they're in the air, they're in, they're in both. Uh, in some cases that means that you overlap the subs with the response of the mains, because now what you're doing like in a, in a line array type of situation is you're extending the line all the way to the floor by adding subs on the floor. That's particularly helpful in sheds because you have a metal roof overhead and that extending that line makes it long enough that you're, you're putting less energy upward into the roof, which means it's less likely to, to rattle and it's not going to come, you know, it's not going to bounce back down to come in, you know, 80 milliseconds late. So, it's not a simple question by any means, and each situation is a different set of uh, set of factors, and it all rests on what the objective of the show is. How much is the displacement between the ground and the air, or the if you're going to ground stack the subs or put them up, in the, and how high are the speakers flown? If it's really high and you have a deep audience, like... Uh, you know, these arrival differences can be a big problem. Yeah. So, in a you know, in an arena where the speakers are, you know, 50 feet or more up in the air. Well, first off, you can't put the sub on, on the on center court. So they're going to go in the air. <laughs> but there are similar situations when this, it, it, that's a good point that one of the first questions to ask is how high are the mains? If the mains aren't very high, then you can put the subs anywhere you want put them on the floor if they're not obstructing anything, or you can fly them up next to the mains. Um, the one I don't like is, is flying them at the, at the top of a linery. They're coupled so tightly, but they can't actually have the same phase relationship as you move uh, forward and back in the room. So you can, you can get it to work, but uh, it's better if the subs are next to the, to the linery because then the, um, the arrival times are more similar. 
Right. I guess the geometric midpoint of that array is not the top of the array. It's it's in the middle. That's right. Yeah. And if you put the subs in the middle of the array, then you've created this discontinuity that messes with the, the directionality of the mains. All right, Dave. So you've done a lot of great things. You've made all these products with Fulcrum Acoustic and, and um, you've done a lot of installs. And, you know, from our conversation so far, it can sound like you've had success success after success. Um, But I also like to try and share with people, you know, some of the mistakes that were made along the way. So I wonder if maybe you could share with us one of the biggest or most painful mistakes that you've made on the job and then maybe how you recovered from that. Uh, Well, it's always painful when something doesn't work. I've, I've made speakers that didn't work. Um, I think, well, most, most of the, I think the, the real answer to that would be something I can't really talk about because it would almost certainly be have to do with uh, personnel decisions. You can't tell personnel stories, but, uh, there've been, there've been a couple of, um, of, uh, product designs that were vexing. There was this one, uh, single 18 sub that just didn't work like the modeling said it should work. And, I probably did more diagnostics on that particular subwoofer than anything I've ever designed and, and never was able to, to, uh, to solve that specific one. So I just went back to a different approach that, you know, had worked in the past. In that case, I, I was, was taking measurements at various points through the horn, even though it was a folded horn. But what I did is just drilled oh, probably 30 or 40 holes in the side of the cabinet um, that were the size of a measurement mic. So I could, I could put the measurement mic into the cabinet anywhere in the horn. And then all of the unused holes were just, were just plugged with corks. <laughs> so this, uh, this ridiculous, this sub just looked ridiculous with corks all over the side of it. But I learned a lot about, uh, about low frequency horns from that, uh, from that experience. I just never did manage to make that one work. The, the the real answer meant that it had to be a different size and different shape. And that was one of those stories that we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation today where you just had to say no. That's right. Yeah. Right. So Bogo Felush asks, what was your biggest challenge by the time you created EAW Focus in T-Series and how did you solve it? Do you know what he's talking about? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the NT series made quite a splash. That was, that was when, uh, Gunnis focusing, which I would call the progenitor of, of TQ. That would be the, uh, the, the, the fulcrum focused uh, version. And the problem was that it was a general solution. So we introduced this project product called our product line called the NT series that, that used the FIR filters. And, uh, it was, a real eye-opener for an awful lot of people. The approach was not limited to that particular design. It was applicable to almost everything in the AAW cabinet catalog. And that catalog was, you know, many, many pages in those days. And so the the biggest challenge was, uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my career doing FIR filters for, you know, for the EAW catalog, because each one takes quite a while. And uh, there's a lot of them that need it. So the answer was a to do to do uh, a bunch more programming in order to automate steps of the process uh, to make it faster. 
but then more importantly, to teach as many people as many of the engineers around me as possible how to develop these processor settings so that I didn't have to be the one to do all of them. And in the end, I, I only did a small percentage of them and, and then uh, the other guys did the rest. But that's, uh, that's an important thing. Uh, you know, there, I've encountered people over the years who, when they developed an important skill, they wanted to keep it close to the vest and, and not let somebody else figure out how to do it. But then you're stuck doing that for the rest of your career. <laughs> you're the same thing, yeah, same thing happened to me with horn design where, you know, I think one of the main needs that I filled at EAW when I went there was, was uh, you know, knowing how to design high-frequency horns. And uh, so that got me the job. But the first thing I did is taught three other people how to do it so that I could move on to something else because I didn't want to be stuck just designing high frequency horns for the rest of my career. Sure. So that's a, you know, I guess that's a, that makes it a pattern, right? You do it same thing twice. Right. <laughs> Minno Zilstra says that Fulcrum is based on DSP. I'm not sure what the, exactly what they mean by that, but how, he, they say, how will you see the future develop in the years to come? What can we expect? So it sounds like they're asking about maybe uh, the future of the DSP involved in your product lines. Yeah, well, he's, he's very right. Fulcrum is based on DSP in the sense that uh, every product we make requires DSP. We don't make anything that's, that you can just plug into a home hi-fi receiver. That's kind of the luxury of having started in 2008. Nothing, no installation of loudspeakers that can afford a, an American-made loudspeaker is going to be done without a DSP in the system. And so we just said, we're, we're going to assume, all we're going to assume there's always a DSP in the system. And so we're not going to try to make things flat. And that, uh, that's very key to the fulcrum design philosophy. Uh, the things that you do to make a to make a loudspeaker flat out of the box don't make it sound better. It, you can always make it sound better if you don't try to make it flat out of the box. You let the compression drivers run flat out, and that means there's no high impedances between the amp and the compression driver, etc. Um, but in order to make that happen, we had to provide factory verified settings for whatever DSP our potential customers, you know, wanted to use. And so we peeked out at something like 23, 24 different processor platforms, including, uh, you know, DSP-based amplifiers. That's actually shrunk a little bit because a few of those products have gone obsolete. In the early days, there was an issue that only a small percentage of, uh, of DSPs could do FIRs. And so we had to classify whether it was a, a full TQ Level one, we called it uh, implementation with FIRs, or whether it was a level two, which is just as, as good as you can get with IIR filters. That has that has served us well. Once customers get get uh, their arms around that, that that oh, I can use any DSP I want, but I can still just go to the Fulcrum site and download the settings and plug them in, and it and it will be you know it's verified that it's right and, that, and it'll work. So that hasn't been a problem, particularly in the American market. The European market seems to seems to work differently. We're we're preparing to to supply a, a Fulcrum branded amplifier DSP package, so it's more of an integrated system. Uh, whereas in the United States, I think there's more large scale installations where there's you know a big mainframe DSP that 
that powers up the installation and you can do all the loudspeaker processing in there. Um, it's a little bit different of, of a philosophy in Europe where they are used to integrated packages where there's an amplifier that's paired up with a speaker. We'll go down that path as well. Um, Dave, what's in your work bag? What do you take with you to site visits and system installs and calibrations? I know, you know, there could be a lot of things, but maybe you could pick out one or two things that you think are unique or interesting. Probably not that many people have, have taken the leap, but I can say that it's, it makes a huge difference is a, a, uh, a radio measurement mic. It's just so much faster to reposition it. And, uh, I mean, there's some places where you just, you, you can't do it any other way. If you're going to do a stadium, you know, you, you don't want to have to string out 400 feet for worth of uh, mic cable to, to get to your, you, you spend your whole life coiling mic cables. Um, <laughs> but even in smaller venues, having, having RF mics or even more than one, is just really, really helpful. What do you have? Well, we were borrowing electrosonics from, uh, from rational acoustics for a while, but, uh, then we started, you know, going out too often and, and, uh, they didn't always have it available for us, but, uh, so now we, now we own one, but, um, I was going to, what I was going to say was that, uh, if you buy one and get one of your buddies to buy one, then you can each borrow each other's and you know, <laughs> That's you know, a good idea. get everybody, you know, to buy one, but then you can go out with it, with a whole, with a whole raft of them. And, and then you can be really efficient. I, I always use smart for tuning and the ability to have two simultaneous curves is, is a pretty attractive feature when you're trying to, when you're trying to fix something in, at one spot without screwing it up in a nice spot and another spot, it's really nice to be able to, to look at the uh, response in both spots at the same time as you're making your adjustments. Um, other than that, I don't, I don't have anything really unusual in my, in my, in my gig bag. Um, because almost all the time when I go out, there's somebody else who's, who's also a uh, sound system tuner. And if it happens to be the guy who was the, you know, the, the primary guy in the installation, well, his gear's already there. So I, I find out what he's got and I just bring whatever's, whatever's missing, which is usually not much. Um, what's one book that has been immensely helpful to you? Veronica, I suppose. Um, Veronica and Olson both, but, uh, more Veronica. Uh, what's the title of that book? It's, uh, acoustics. Strangely enough, yeah. Um, Olson's book is Acoustical Engineering. But it's, you know, it's the standard textbook. I, I actually used that as a textbook in one of my courses in college. When I think of books, I'm, think, I'm thinking of, of technical references for, you know, the calculus and the, the equations, uh, you know, solutions to the wave equation, those kinds of things. Uh, Dave, do you listen to any podcasts? Nope. Okay, then I won't ask other, you about it. Other, other than yours. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Well, I, I, until very recently, I had a six-minute commute. That's a so, nice commute. Yeah, so I just moved to Rhode Island, and that went up to a 20, 25-minute commute. I haven't got into the podcast thing yet. I'm in a, I'm in a uh, community choir called Rock Voices. Okay. And so I figured out how to program my phone so that it plays the, uh, you know, the tenor part on my way to work. So I learned Oh, the, you can learn, learn your part. Yeah, cool. so that doesn't leave time for uh, for podcasts. <laughs> uh, what song are you learning right now? Handel's Messiah. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Dave, where is the best place for people to follow your work? The Fulcrum Facebook site and the Fulcrum, the Fulcrum uh, website. All right, Dave, well, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Sound Design. I want to thank Hospitalized and JNGS for the music in today's episode. If you want to find more of their music, check the show notes for today's podcast because the links are a little bit long. Sound Design Live is supported by Ross, Learn Stage Lighting, John Scott, Pedro Rob, Martin, Rody Free Radio, Joel Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry Nicholas, Kuba Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Thank <laughs> you.